It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is September 15 and 2022, and my guest is Zina Sarif. Zina is a cancer scientist and founder at Yendu, a company building tech-enabled clinical care delivery. Zina, welcome to the show. Thank you, Niklas. Happy to be here. Zina, what would you like listeners to know about you? I believe we can cure cancer in the next 50 years, that we haven't done enough to do so. I made it my life mission to cure cancer in my lifetime. And if any of your listeners is up to the party, they can reach out to me and connect with me on LinkedIn. How did you become interested in cancer? I grew up in Morocco and there, there were only two oncology hospitals in the country, one in the capital and another one in the north. I lived in the capital and because the majority of people in low-income countries cannot afford early diagnosis, so usually when they are diagnosed with cancer, it's around stage four advanced cancer. And they used to come to the capital for therapy and most of them cannot afford the stay in the hospital and many of them usually they just stay with friends or family members so we have been hosting many cancer patients at our place home and I remember the first patient I met was my uncle and also seeing how someone's health can deteriorate within a few months and be released to palliative care and dying and also realizing that physicians cannot really do much in terms of helping patients as long as we do not have therapies that can help those patients. And in this naive moment, I decided I would like to become a cancer scientist and find the cure. What are the main things that people get wrong about cancer? Like in terms of that cancer is cancer, For example, if you have colorectal cancer or breast cancer, is that all cancers are the same while they are really different depending on the human diagnosed with cancer because it's a genetic disease. And something I was wrong about for a long part of my time as a cancer scientist is that the reason that we haven't found cure to cancer is because we are still struggling to find the right medicine and the reason why clinical trials take so long is because it's so hard to go through all the processes of safety and efficacy and we want to make sure that patients are safe. What is cancer in the first place? 
It's a genetic mutation that leads to uncontrolled growth of cells. Basically, it's like you have certain cells that decided they want to grow. And somehow, according to the evolutionary principle of survival of the fittest, they require more energies. And they start feeding themselves from the environment and kind of cannibalizing our own body. In what ways do we treat cancer today? What do we have available? Depending on the type of cancer, but for most cancers, usually it's radiotherapy, chemotherapy. And then we have surgery for solid tumors too. And then there are different types of immunotherapies, which are just targeted therapies. We know that cancer grows based on certain genetic mutations or a hyperactivity of certain protein. And we try to target those genes and proteins in our body and kill them and indirectly kill the cancer cell through that. So it's majority is targeted therapy for immunotherapy or radiotherapy, chemotherapy and surgery. Did I understand you correctly when you said the problem is not or not only development of new drugs and therapies against cancer, it's even more so on the clinical trial side. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, it, like, it takes 12 years to take a cancer therapeutic from the start of a phase one clinical trial to drug approval, which means every drug that we have approved in the market today is a technology from the past. It also means that with a patent life cycle of 20 years, having a drug within the clinical trial for 12 years, it doesn't give the industry the incentive to sell those therapeutics at a cheaper price because you only have a restricted timeline to monetize on it. The other issue that we have is the cost of a clinical trial and here literally the clinical drug development from the start of phase one till approval, which is around 800 million, which leads to every drug that makes it to the clinical trial. It's not only based on the potential of the drug to cure cancer patients, but also on the probability of this drug to make it to the approval. And if you search on Google for clinical drug development, you will find always this beautiful diagram showing you how we go from hundreds of thousands of potential drugs in the preclinical phase to one approved therapy at the end of the clinical cycle. And we believe it's because most of the other drugs fail along the path in phase one, phase two, it's like just that we have a strict selection. But if we look really at the concrete data, how high is the probability of a drug to get from one cycle, from one phase to the next one? And over 50% of IPs in phase one and phase three trials make it, and around 40% from phase two move to phase three, which shows us that we literally, the risk aversion because it costs that much money, because it takes so long, we only invest in therapeutics with a high probability to get approved. And as a consequence, what we do is that most technologies we have, they are just what I would call an update of past technologies that we had in the last five, 10 years.
there are a few breakthroughs, but it's not really amazing breakthroughs. Like we are just having incremental innovation, adding maybe a few months more to patients' life, but we are not really targeting cure and winning the war against cancer. I want to double click on several things you said, but before, <laughs> can you explain to the uninitiated listener what are clinical yes. trials and why do we have them? Usually when developing a therapy goes through two cycles. We have drug discovery, which is it happens in a laboratory where we discover a drug and then we start testing it in a petri dish and see their effects on those tumors. We call them cell cultures. And if we have great data, the next step within drug discovery is testing those therapeutics in mouse as an animal model to see how does this potential drug actually interact with other systems in our whole organism. Because when we test it only in a small petri dish, we only see the effect on singular cells. But now we have a body and then we see does it affect the metabolism, does it affect a digestive system, immune system, and so on. And we gather data in the animal mouse model. And only once we have convincing data that this therapeutic is, has great potential in terms of data shows that it's caused that the cancer showing gets smaller and it, ha it doesn't have much toxicity that affects the, the animal model. Then we move to the next step, which about testing the drug in human being and seeing does it have the same effect on humans as it has on mouse models. But even before moving to human beings, we test those therapeutics in organisms like pig, dogs, and primates, but mostly to understand that it also has effects on cardiovascular systems. And when we have those data, then we go to the FDA, to the regulatory bodies, and request a permit based on those data to run clinical trials, namely tests in humans, to see if those therapeutics are also beneficial to patients and if they are also better than current standard of care. People think that within a clinical trial, you test a drug against a placebo. In cancer, it's not the case. It's actually unethical to give patients placebo. So usually we test those new experimental drugs against the standard of care which is the therapy that usually those patients will get if they are not part of the clinical trial. And that's what clinical trials are. And then they run in three phases. In phase one, it runs in a small number of patients. And, we and it's all about safety, making sure that this experimental drug has no safety concern. And then if the safety profile is clear, then the drug moves to phase two. And in phase two, it's all about dosing and seeing are there like investigating more potential side effects that, that those experimental drugs can have and also the effect on the metabolism and gathering primary data on how on their efficiency and if the data from phase two are great then we are allowed to move to a phase three trial which is a trial done with around thousand patients and see and, and really test the efficacy of the drug. Does the drug really improve patients? And if it's the case, and if it's really better than the current standard of care, then this drug will get, the experimental drug get approved. Got it. So we have clinical trials to make sure 
cancer drugs that reach the market, that reach patients are safe and effective. That yeah. sounds reasonable. But at the same time, the system is set up in a way that it takes 12 years for this process to unfold. Now, yeah. what you're doing with your company, can you explain more what you want to do with your company and how do you want to improve the status quo? Yes. As you said, it takes really 12 years to bring those therapeutics to the market. But before even bringing those therapeutics to the market approval, patients can actually benefit from those therapeutics within the clinical trial. As just mentioned, 58% of experimental drugs in phase three trials get approved, which means in 58% of the cases, the therapy that the patients get within a clinical trial is better than the standard of care that they will get anyways outside of the clinical trial. And the other 42%, it's not that they are inferior to the standard of care. Usually they are around the same level. So we have this medical innovation within a clinical trial that patients can benefit. And if we look at it, only 8% of patients around the globe participate in clinical trials. Clinical trials are a privilege to patients who have access to great infrastructures because they are mostly run in big hospitals in big cities. And in my case, I was running breast cancer clinical trials at a pharmaceutical company before I quit my job. And, and I had this case where I had this clinical trial for triple negative breast cancer patients stage four, which is like the advanced form of triple negative breast cancer. And those patients, usually they have no therapy and their chances of survival for five years is under 10%. And at the same time, I had this clinical trial, phase three clinical trial that showed great phase one data. Around 30% of the patients had full remission, which means they were cured. But like in, in the medical sense, a cancer patient is never cured because there is always a risk to get cancer again, but fully remission means that there are no signs of cancer in their body. So we have the current status quo where there is no chance and hope for those patients. And at the same time, I have a clinical trial with an experimental drug that showed amazing data for this patient's population. And when you have those data, what you do is you go to the FDA and request the permit to run a phase two or a phase three clinical trial. And this process, what we call clinical trial startup, namely to deliver a clinical trial to clinics. So clinics can prescribe those experimental drugs to patients. It takes around 18 months. That's longer than the chance of survival for those patients. And you just get sick of seeing patients dying for no reasons and we would have been able to be faster and bring those drugs faster to the clinic so patients have access to them and that's what we what i want to do with the yendu namely automate processes that now are still run manually and people heavy with a lot of spreadsheet shipping between different uh, bodies and build an airbnb like platforms where clinicians can request participation in a clinical trial the same way we can request a booking a room on Airbnb 
And I hope with that to be able to shorten the timeline of clinical trial delivery to patients from 18 months to four months. That allows a higher number than 8% of cancer patients to get enrolled into clinical trials as well and get more patients to take part in trials. So hopefully we can collect better data about them. Am I getting that correctly? Yes, definitely. Because if what we see in other industries, platforms in a democratize access. Literally today, if you want to be part of a clinical trial, there is no place you can go to request participation. And if you can't request participation, you just don't have access to a clinical research opportunity. Uh, and to me, this is like the first thing we have to work on. I have been working in this space. I have been watching what health tech companies in the space are doing. And there is a lot of talk around virtual care. There is a lot of talk around digitalizing the processes we have today. But I think we are just missing the point that our job in drug development to develop amazing therapies that actually add bring benefit to the patient. And if we talk to cancer patients, no patients will tell you, you know what, I want, I would rather have telemedicine with my oncologist than cure. So our focus should be on accelerating clinical research. Listeners can't see that, but at several points when you were talking, I was a bit shocked. Can you understand people's reaction like mine, that sort of the whole clinical trial system sounds like a Kafkaesque nightmare? Definitely. It is because to me, I was really frustrated and people tell you, you have to be patient. And I'm like, we can't be patient because people are dying. And we know that in 2040, 50% of us will be diagnosed with cancer. And to me, I, by that time, I would rather not be scared of this diagnosis. And also, when we, if people will talk to cancer patients and see, like we know we have chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but what radiotherapy and chemotherapy does to people, it's just horrible. Like it, and to me, this is not the standard of cure we want to have. And we have to move faster. We have to do better. And I am somehow disappointed by the discourse we have around healthcare, that we are more focused on building, in my opinion, the wrong technologies. Healthcare is here to provide care to patients in need first. Everything else is second. And we are focusing on secondary objectives than on what really matters most to patients. Zina, you're doing God's work. <laughs> Thank you for that. If you can reduce the time for patients to access clinical trials from 18 months to four. And I wish you all the best and success in the world to do that will be amazing progress. Just to give Thank listeners you. a bit of a sense of what you're up against. What is eRoom's law? Just like a tiny correction. So this is like the goal of our MVP is to shorten the timeline from 18 months to four months to deliver the clinical trial. What like the mission of Yendu and my mission is to reduce the timeline from 12 years to seven years and reduce the cost around 300 millions instead of 800 millions to, to enable more players to run clinical trials. Because at the moment, the biggest hurdle is literally having the budget to run a clinical trial. What is Aaron's law? Today, the world is literally run by Moore's law, which is basically uh, when you early on with the development of, like at the beginning of 
the technology is thriving, that the computer power is the most important factor in the progress of our society. And in 1965, Gordon Moore, who was the CEO of Intel, he predicted that the number of transistors per silicon chip is going to double every two years. We have seen it happening. It's also the reason why we have more computer power in smaller devices. And also, we have more computer power for the same price. And most law predict that with time, through the development and the progress of technology, we have a shorter development life cycle for and the development costs and timeline is get smaller and smaller. And this prediction applies actually to every industry except to drug development. In 22, Nature published a paper showing how the number of drugs developed for the same budget between 1940 and 2000 was actually decreasing, which means we need more money to sponsor every single experimental drug. The costs are increasing. And also the timeline to bring a drug to the market are increasing too, from seven years to 12 years today. And when you overlap the more slow curve to the timeline and cost curve over the years, you can really see that in drug development, we have a phenomenon which is called like Moore's Law reverse. And if you reverse more as a word, then it's Arum. Arum, there is this Arum's Law, how Moore's Law applies to every other industry except to drug development that is resisting the technological progress. And therefore, we are experiencing, experiencing more inefficiencies in timeline and cost. Arum's Law to me is one of the most scary things I've ever seen. Just to repeat that, in the world of computers, in the world of bits, we've been advancing yeah. enormously, like by a rate of about doubling our capacity or power computing power every 18 months. And in drug development, like one of the most important areas for human flourishing to live longer and healthier lives, the exact reverse is true. Despite exactly. Moore's Law allowing us to use technology also mm -hmm. in drug development and health and biotech, and we know that works, right? We know we can develop yeah. novel drugs and therapies in the computer. That's why it's so scary to me. And the question I keep asking myself is, why? How is that possible? Exactly. Yes, there is the interpretation that despite the technological progress, we can there is no possibility in drug development to profit from it, which is not true because we haven't even given technology a chance to play a role in drug development. And, and this is the only reason why, reason why we have Irum's law in drug development. And it is really hard. On the one hand, you have in pharmaceutical companies and researchers, they are all, it, it's a field that requires expertise over years. So most people working in the space, they spent at least 10 years gaining expertise to be able to provide an output. And an education that require an expert, expert mindset make it really harder for people to be vertical thinker and 
look across industries and see how can we profit from each other. And at the same time, we have the computer scientist on the other side discovering all other industries. But it's really hard and they have no idea how things are happening in healthcare because first, it's hard to enter the healthcare space if you don't have healthcare expertise. And to acquire healthcare expertise, it's just like you have to go through this long process of skills that need to be acquired over a long period of time, which makes it also just like that we have two parallel worlds living next to each other, namely the life science world and then everything else on the other side. I've been also grappling with that question over a couple of podcast episodes. I spoke with Jessica Flanagan about the ethics of regulation yeah. and drug development and with Raymond Marsh about the economic incentives of a large public agency, the largest public agency in the yeah. world, the FDA. And yeah. I know we agree, we did probably disagree when it comes to it, but just to put that up for debate, like yeah. it seems to me that the pharmaceutical industry, the regulators, the medical establishment is using and in a sense abusing their power to make laws, to shut people out of the system and make it harder and slower to modernize it. They're saying you're not allowed to treat anyone if you don't get our permission. And yes. by making getting this permission extremely hard and cumbersome and expensive, they're of course yes. also inviting fewer people to participate. It just makes it harder. You have to work with lawyers. You have to get approved for 10 years to be able to work in anything. Isn't that the problem? <laughs> like the regulatory side and the laws we've created to yeah. require everyone to follow this process. Yeah, we disagree here a bit. A regulatory definitely plays a role in hindering progress, but the industry have been using the regulatory as an argument to hide their own inefficiencies and the role that they play in it. So, Let's say, like, the things about regulatories where I think we have issues, one of them is if you have an update to a drug, you can just run a phase three clinical trial. So this is the issue. Then you have to go through the whole wheel, even though that your drug is going to go through phase one and phase two, which just leads to having higher cost and also no incentive to keep updating the therapeutics we already have in the market. And this is a huge issue we have in the industry. Another one is the 20 years patent. Honestly, I really don't know. Do we need to have patent on drugs? And the other thing is also the infrastructure, the regulatories, they are, they are not the most tech-friendly organizations as most governmental organizations anyways. Is it the number one reason why we have been unable to innovate fast? Not really. I believe, for example, today, 70% of pharmaceutical revenue is coming from partnership with emerging biotech companies. Having clinical trials being costly and definitely benefit the organizations that have monopoly on the market because it means that no biotech company can afford running clinical trials and they are always obliged to partner with big pharmaceutical companies to bring their innovation to the market. So you have few companies that actually dictate which therapeutics go through the clinical trials and get approved or not. 
the way clinical trials are run by contract research organizations. The business model are billable hours. So the longer it takes, the better and the more money they make. So literally, there is not a single incentive for them to have faster clinical trials. And that's, to me, okay, it's hard to change the regulations, but there are things that need to be changed. But the whole, before even moving to the regulations and start talking to them. Whenever you go to a cancer conference and you have the key opinion leaders, those are the influencers in the industry, the first, like, the opening talk in every cancer conference is that 50 per, we could reduce 50% the cancer case incidence by 50% just by improving lifestyle. We know that 50% of cancer cases every year are lifestyle induced, which means diet, physical activity, stress level, maybe social behavior, many factors that we have never studied. And we don't run any clinical trials to understand which effect they have. We know we could, we could prevent diseases in a cheaper way, just by improving the lifestyle. We, we don't do it. But at the same time, the question is, 50% of cancer cases are lifestyle-induced. How many cancer cases are cured thanks to lifestyle changes? And to me, it should be a responsibility of every company running a clinical trial to measure the lifestyle of the patients. Because today, we don't even know how much the proclaimed benefits of therapies approved are actually indirect and due to lifestyle changes. Because most patients, when they do their own research and they see all those stories and then they also adapt and they change their environment to optimize their odds to cure. In the culture and the industry, you don't measure what you don't want to see. Yes, yeah, so to me, if I would like to see at least our regulatories asking for more data, Biden, I think at the beginning of this week, he held a speech on making curing cancer a U.S. purpose. and But then the conversation is always around data collection, and I just feel like maybe we are just missing the point. I think we are missing the point. <laughs> it seems to me there's a group of people, call them the medical system. They got together yes. and developed structures. They messed up. It doesn't work. It takes way too long. Yes. It doesn't deliver the right quality at the right speed. But they're telling everyone else, you're not allowed to do anything unless we approve. I think we are allowed to do something. To me is, okay, it's not no one is allowed to run a clinical trial. It's not no one is allowed to run clinical research. But when I look at the industry, okay, this is the game. And that's how the game is played. If you want to free yourself from the game, you got to play the game. And when I look at how the regulatory structure, we are able to improve despite the regulatory challenges we have today. Like, honestly, to me is, we are 8 billion human beings on this planet and we delegate our health to a handful of companies that decide in which diseases we can invest. And those decisions are business decisions. And when we look 
Can we change something? I love the idea. To me, if I am done with Yendo, the other startup I will be building would be a clinical trial DAO. What I would like to have is, why can't we make pharma a people's business? Like having a collective investing in clinical therapeutics and then, yeah, sharing the revenue to all contributors. And that's how we also can get capital back to the public infrastructure. There is There are things that we can do within the restrictions we have today. I partly agree. Like, I think there are things we can do. I think it's a great idea to form a DAO, to develop more patient-centered solutions and find research, fund research solutions together. I have less hope than you have probably in working through the existing system or at least... A hundred percent. So what I see in the blockchain and the DAO space is that many people are building separate legal and financial guardrails, including, for example, Bitcoin, which has not ever yeah. been approved by a regulator, but it works yeah. without a third party approving or disapproving it. It's there and people are using it and people yeah. are benefiting from it. So I wonder if something like that could happen in clinical trials as well. Yeah. And to me, it depends on the collective. And that's where I say, instead of sitting there and blaming the circumstances for where we are today, we have to be biased toward action. And, and that's why the regulatories do not make it impossible for medical innovation to thrive in today's ecosystem. But even if we look at the market, how much investment is in other industries and not in healthcare. Healthcare become a hot market also for, in terms of capital funding, only since the pandemic started. And that's when people, uh, we can capitalize on healthcare because there is a need. And I am definitely hopeful. I am optimistic. I think it's, if I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing what I am doing today. I'm also optimistic. I think both... You and I agree that, and I really admire your work. I wonder, is there anything in Europe? I know of a couple of initiatives, a couple of groups in the United States that are actively advocating successfully for patients' rights, such as, for example, a right to try. So a right to try is something that I've discussed in my podcast in the past. These are laws mm. designed to make it easier for patients to access medical drugs that are in clinical trial stage. They are very nascent yes. and they make it somewhat easier before, but still extremely hard. What's happening on yes. that front in Europe or what you're aware of? Mm, we, like we are very risk-averse culture. And this is also something I criticize about our about regulatories in general. So in addition to the fact that there is no possibility for update and the restrictions around pattern that makes it really harder to innovate faster or even give the industry the incentives to do better, also the assumption that someone decides, okay, how much risk are you willing to take for cure? And regulators today make the decisions for all patients. And... I believe it's wrong. Let the patient decide how many side effects they are willing to take into account for cure. Because there are drugs that have higher cure potential, they have more inconvenient side effects. And I want to take the decision myself because you always can switch therapy if you no longer want to go to a 
therapy and don't take the decision for me. The other issues we have is drugs need to be tested first in advanced cancer before moving to patients who have like early disease stages. We know in advanced cancer, like even the cancer you have inside you is so heterogeneous because you have to, it's literally the evolution working against us. Those tumor cells, they become smarter and then they accommodate to the therapy and build their resistance systems and then they grow more complex that even in one tumor, no cell is like the other. We call it the heterogeneity of cancer that even within one, a singular individual, a cancer is a heterogeneous mass. And we know that it's really hard that many therapies could be most effective more effective in early stage than at late stage. And by having this process of we start late and only if the drug is effective against the most progressive and aggressive cancer, then we can test it in other patients. is just, I don't even know, I, it's absurd, especially considering that those therapeutics are personalized therapeutics against certain pathways in the body. And those pathways, probably they are, more functioning in early stage and dysfunctional in late stage. It just doesn't make any sense. I have several jaw-dropping moments when you (laughs) say that. (laughs) Just like DFDA is working, they announced a project called Frontrunners. They are planning to announce it in March 2023, uh, working on addressing, maybe starting clinical enabling pharmaceutical companies to test drugs in early stage cancer not only in advanced cancer. This, I think it would take really long before the European Medicine Agency follow the path. Yeah. Just on a personal note, Zina, <laughs> what do you do to cope with the frustrations you must experience so frequently in that environment or in that system? I go for runs. Sometimes I scream. <laughs> like I scream in silence and then I'm fine. I am a dreamer. I'm an optimistic realist. I know exactly how the reality is. I do not expect people to be more, yeah, following more common sense than I wish they would be. And just, okay, how can I work with what I have and improve the situation? Sometimes it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating when you talk to people in the industry and they tell you, you have to stop thinking about value as impact value and think about business value. Whenever you want to have a positive impact on patients' lives, I have always to think about how I can make it profitable to an industry because otherwise I can't achieve it. Yeah, I think that's how I cope with it. It was like, how can I make it a business model that's profitable for the industry? Otherwise, I'm going nowhere. Zina, would you like to say anything else about your company? Are you fundraising right now? Are you looking for people to join the mission? What can my listeners do to help you? Who should reach out to you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, if one of the listeners is a technical person, a computer scientist who have done something impressive in their life before and would like to join a meaningful cause and have impact on humanity, I'm always happy to, to connect to people in the tech space. Because I know many people in the healthcare space and clinical trial space, I would like to have more technical people connected to the clinical people and to be able to accelerate the impact. Fantastic. Zina, I'm on the one hand shocked by the anatomy 
of the system that you're describing when it comes to developing one of the most important that is that is designed to extend um, the span and quality of human life but seems to me is failing in many areas to do what gives me hope is that people like you are on the front lines trying to change the system and offer better solutions for patients any solutions any higher speed and quality um, of drugs that are accessible for patients is a win there's always a patient whose lives can be extended or improved so Sina, thank you so much for your work and thank you for coming on the show thank you Niklas for inviting me and for this conversation I really enjoyed it Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.